Thank you very much. Good morning to you all. If you would turn to Daniel chapter 5, and we're going to look at a familiar passage, at least a familiar story to most of us. Daniel chapter 5. The book of Daniel is a fascinating book because the first six chapters are a kind of uh, recounting of history that illustrates some grand truths for us. The last six chapters are more prophetic and go beyond uh, the time of Daniel. But the first six chapters, and especially chapter 5, highlights for us that uh, the history of Daniel and Babylon, because um, Nebuchadnezzar the king had gone to Israel, defeated Judah, and taken um, people from Judah into captivity. And Daniel chapter 5 is the very last day of the Babylonian Empire. So Nebuchadnezzar um, defeated uh, Judah, took um, the Israelites into captivity in Babylon, and after 70 years, we come to Daniel chapter 5, because God uh, prophesied that his people would be in exile for 70 years. And Daniel 5 is when God is beginning to fulfill his promise to deliver his people from exile. And so we see here the story of another king, not Nebuchadnezzar, but probably a grandson at least of Nebuchadnezzar named Belshazzar. We don't know how long he reigned. Some people say two years. Some people say 17. But we see the last day of his reign in this chapter And what we find is we see this king throwing a party. And he's throwing a party while another king, King Cyrus of Persia, has uh, put his city, Babylon, under siege. Now, to be under siege meant nobody got to leave and nobody got to come in. And the purpose of a siege in a war was to basically starve out your enemy and lead them to surrender because... They're running out of food, they're running out of water, running out of all that they need. And so it's a way of encouraging them to surrender when they've holed up in their city and they're not wanting to give up. Um, Babylon uh, thought they had at least 10 or 20 years worth of food. They thought they could outlast King Cyrus. And so you've got this whole setting that's a fascinating setting when you think about what's going on historically Um, in this chapter in Daniel chapter 5. Well, as we come to this passage, let me just encourage you to do what uh, hopefully we'll do whenever we read the Bible. I would encourage you to do this when you read uh, during the week. There are three important questions to ask. First is, excuse me, what does it say? That's where we have to begin is really look at the words we're reading and how they're connected and what the argument is and what the story is and and ask ourselves, what does this actually say? Because sometimes we have ideas that the Bible says things that it doesn't say. Like, um, you know, cleanliness is next to God, godliness. Well, people say that's in the Bible, but it's really not. So we really need to take a good close look at what the Bible actually does say. But secondly, not only what does it say, but what does it mean? Uh, what, what are the uh, meanings of the words that are used? What are the implications of it? And then finally, what does it mean for me? Because it meant something for them in that day and time when it was written or given, but it also means something to us. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And therefore, it is something that 
God uses to not only speak to the people of that day and time, but to speak to me and, and to you. Ultimately, everything the Bible says is, is answering the question, how do I live to glorify God? Because that was, that's what we were created to do. That's our purpose. Like the Westminster Divines asked the question, the very first question in their catechism, what is the chief end of man or what is the purpose of man? And the purpose, they say, is to glorify and enjoy God. And how do you do that? Well, the second question talks about the Word of God. It's the Word of God that tells us how we're to glorify God in every situation, in every relationship, and how we're to enjoy God, in a sense, in every relationship, in every situation. And it comes down to what we've talked about over and over again, trust and love, or faith and love. The Bible encourages us to trust God in every situation, in every relationship. The Bible causes us to love like God loves, according to His commands, in every situation, in every circumstance, or in every relationship. And so, as we come to this chapter this morning, uh, let me encourage all of us to ask the question, so how is this encouraging me to trust God in my life today? And how is it encouraging me to love in my life today? Because that is what God wants us to hear as we read this story together. So let me read for us uh, this story in Daniel chapter 5. Again, a very familiar story and yet a fascinating story as we think about it. So in verse 1 it says, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink, drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king 
named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Now just, excuse me, just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered it and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. How excuse me, whomever he wished he killed and whomever he wished he spared alive and whomever he wished he elevated and whomever he wished he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven and they have brought the vessels of his house before you and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written. Meeny, meeny, tekel up harsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Meeny, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. This is the word of God. Well, it's a long story, but it's a very, very interesting story. And as I said, many of us have probably heard the story before. The question is, have we really given much thought to uh, how it applies in our own lives? Um, The first thing that we see is that the story is about a king. And the king is Belshazzar. In verse 1, it says, uh, 
Belshazzar the king, the king of Babylon, uh, holds a great feast. And as I said, he is the last king of the Babylonian empire. Probably at least a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. When it says father in the passage, it could mean um, forefather, which means it's hard to know exactly where he was uh, in terms of his relationship to Nebuchadnezzar, but he was a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. And so he is um, ruling as a king, but according to history, he co-ruled with his father. And so when he says, I'll make you third ruler in the kingdom, it's probably because uh, he wasn't the number one ruler. He co-ruled with his father. So it's his father, it's him, and it's the, the third person who would get the reward if they were able to interpret what was written on the wall. In verses uh, 1 through 4, it talks about this feast that was had, which is interesting to think about because they're throwing this feast. It was probably some kind of annual feast they typically had. Um, It wasn't something unusual. It seemed to be uh, something that was kind of on the calendar. It's time for us to have our feast. And as most pagan festivals were in that time, uh, it was a debauched affair so god gives us just the bare minimum of information but the drinking uh, obviously led to drunkenness and there were men and women involved and so there was all kinds of things going on that we don't even need to think about or talk about it was just a debauched uh, reveling uh, that was taking place and in the midst of this uh, the king gets the idea hey why don't we uh, grab the uh, you know, the cups and and bowls and things that were used in the temple in Jerusalem. And let's use them as a part of our uh, debauched uh, party as a way of saying that we've triumphed over this God and uh, we are partying, partying in his face, so to speak. What is so ironic is about this, as I mentioned earlier, Cyrus the Persian, who ultimately defeats the Babylonians, has already uh, put up a siege wall around Babylon. And some people think that siege has already been going on for at least a year. And so you've got this army that's ready to uh, take you down, kill you, destroy you, and you're having a party on the inside. You have a great false sense of security. All of us can real, uh, rec, um, recognize that uh, in people we see around us or maybe in, even in our own lives, our own experience. We can realize there were times we had a false sense of security. And that is definitely the way it was for the people here in Belshazzar. And so it's almost like the story of Neo. There's kind of a myth. Most people don't believe this actually happened, but... Th- When Rome was burning under Nero's watch, some say he played a fiddle while Rome burns. Well, fiddles weren't invented by that time, so he probably didn't play a fiddle. And yet the idea is that he showed very little real concern about the fire and about what was going on. It's exactly the way it was for Belshazzar. He didn't show much concern at all about what the impending doom was Uh, from the Persian army. And yet the reality is there was a greater impending doom from God himself that he also 
uh, had this very false sense of security about, that he was willing to defy God by drinking from the vessels of the temple under some unbelievably false sense of security. Well, what happens is uh, this king who would not uh, pay heed to the siege around his city, uh, God gets his attention in another way. And what we find happening in verses 5 and 6, we find that there's the appearance of the fingers of a man's hand. So evidently from the wrist up, not the whole arm, but just from the wrist up all the way to the fingertips, you've got this hand that appears. And uh, it's known that the banquet hall of the Babylonians was of white plaster. And so if you wrote on that with a dark um, dark writing, it would show up very well. And so the, the picture that we have, and it's actually portrayed in this uh, painting by Rembrandt from the 1600s, a hand appears, it writes on the wall, uh, King Belshazzar and all those who are partying with him uh, are suddenly alarmed by what they see happening. And whenever I see, you know, the reference to... Um, his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. I can't help but think of um, Barney Fife and Andy Griffith or uh, when Don Knotts played in The Ghost and Mr. Chicken and you know his body just visibly shakes from fear. And that's, that's funny, but this isn't funny because his body literally shaked uh, from fear when he saw what was happening and I think um, any of us probably would have done the same thing if we had seen something like that begin to happen. And so God obviously gets his attention in one sense, but it doesn't make the impact on him that you would expect. And so in verses 7 through 9, it talks about the fact that he, in verse 7, calls aloud. And the way that's written is it's basically uh, a scream of de- desperation, uh, he is clearly, uh, as Calvin would say, beside himself with fear. And he calls out for help from the wise men of Babylon. And he says, you know, if you can read this, and if you can explain it to me, I'll make you third ruler in the kingdom. But we see that they could not read the inscription. Even though they're the best the world had to offer, the wise men of Babylon were considered about as wise as you could get in that day and time. And they thought they knew all that could be known and that they could understand all that needed to be understood. And yet they're faced with the writing on the wall and they don't know what it says and they don't know what it means. And therefore, the king and all the people who are there are perplexed. They have no idea what they're dealing with. And um, as we've probably experienced or heard of people experiencing, sometimes the greatest fear is the unknown. When we don't know what's going on, uh, that's even a greater fear. We become even more alarmed, which is what happened to King Belshazzar. He became even more afraid when he realized that he didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know what was happening, what was going on. We tend to think knowledge is control, and we feel better about things if we just know what's happening. Well, they didn't know what was happening. And there was great, great fear among all of them. Well, it says in verse 10 that the queen entered. If you read the 
story carefully, it sounds like the queen was already there because it says uh, earlier that um, the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines were already at the party and drinking. So when it says the queen entered, it probably means the queen mother entered. And so she's either the the mother of Belshazzar or uh, possibly even uh, the grandmother or great-grandmother, someone who would have a good idea of what happened in the past. Someone who would have a great uh, understanding of the family history that included what happened to um, King Nebuchadnezzar. The interesting thing is, she comes in and she says, O king, live forever, which is not what's going to happen. He's about to die. And he was under the, the illusion that he was going to live forever. And everybody was telling him, oh, you're going to live forever. Uh, we hope you live forever. And what he needed to realize was he wasn't going to live forever. And he needed to be prepared for that. It's like Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, all of life is really a preparation for the life to come. And yet that's not the way Belshazzar looked at it. But the queen mother comes in and she reminds him of Daniel. She says, there is someone in your kingdom that has shown that he can figure out really tough riddles. Um, The idea of uh, explanation of enigmas, as it says in verse 12, as the idea of resolving dark sayings or riddles or really hard uh, sentences or or things like that. The idea of solving difficult problems is the picture of uh, dissolving knots. You've got a really knotty problem. You're you're having having trouble uh, unknotting the knot. Well, this man can unknot your knot for you. He can uh, explain to you what is really going on because if you remember, your father, maybe your grandfather, um, actually made him the chief of the magicians and the wise men, which means he was no longer in that position, which means Belshazzar had no respect for the wisdom that God had put right in his reach which is really interesting when you think about it because you might wonder well we don't have any prophets like that today and so has it's not like we really ignore the wisdom that god has put in our reach right well it just depends on how much we look at this and listen to this and there, there are a lot of people that you go to church on sunday not necessarily in this church they go to church on Sunday and their Bible's left uh, in their car or on a shelf the rest of the week. It's the same thing that Belshazzar was doing. He, he had a prophet right there in his kingdom who could help him unknot the naughty things of life, could help him prepare for the life to come, and yet he wasn't making use of that resource. And so he ends up... Um, being reminded by his grandmother, probably at least, that you do have a resource here, a very valuable resource, and you ought to call on him and have him help you. It's kind of like if you were taking a physics class and you lived with Albert Einstein and you never consulted Albert Einstein for any help on your uh, physics homework. Um, you would be shortchanging yourself. And Belshazzar 
shortchanged himself greatly when he had right at his fingertips, so to speak, the truth and the encouragement that he needed for his life. And so we see that uh, Daniel is called and um, Daniel is offered um, the same reward that the wise men are offered. Uh, Belshazzar says, I've heard about you. Don't really have any relationship with you. Haven't really thought I really needed any relationship with you, but I've heard about you. And my grandmother says you might be a good resource because my grandfather kind of thought you were pretty important and might be helpful. And so uh, are you this Daniel? And uh, can you really do this sort of thing? If you can, then I'll be glad to you know, reward you with the same things that I've promised these other men. And Daniel basically says, uh, no, thank you. You could read, keep your gifts for yourself, uh, when he says in verse 17, as sort of a rude, but it's really not necessarily a rude way of speaking. He's basically saying, uh, no, thank you. I don't really have any interest in that kind of thing. And it could be that Daniel already knew that he wasn't going to be able to do that for him anyway, that he wasn't going to have the kingdom long enough to make him third ruler in the kingdom, that things were coming to a head. But he says, I will do this for you. I will read it, and I will tell you what it says, which was a kindness. Um, He knew the king did not deserve it. He knew the king was wicked. He knew the king really wasn't interested in the truth because he had shown that by not even consulting Daniel all these years. But he said, I'll tell you, I'll be glad to speak the truth. Even though he knew that it might cost him his life because typically um, kings in that day and time who had absolute authority um, could kill you if they didn't like what you said. If you said something that implied that they weren't great, like everybody else is telling them that they're great, then they might take your life. And yet Daniel says, I'll tell you the truth. I'll speak the truth in love. And that's just what he does. And so he goes on in verses 18 through 23 to rebuke the king. Because he says, um, you haven't taken to heart a Bible story. A Bible story, if you've been reading, your, if you've been reading Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, you know this story. In Daniel chapter 4, there's a Bible story about your grandfather named Nebuchadnezzar. And in that story... Um, you find out that, as it says in verse 18, the Most High God granted sovereignty to Nebuchadnezzar, which means he put him in authority. In fact, he put him in the highest authority on the planet. He put him over everyone in his kingdom. And he had such authority that he has authority, maybe even greater, but similar to the authority that rulers have in China, or North Korea, or maybe even Russia today, where if they want to get rid of you, uh, they can get rid of you. And that's part of their power. They can raise you up, and they can bring you down. They can let you stay alive, and they can put you to death. We still have rulers like that in our day and time, but even in that day and time, it was even uh, greater in certain ways. And so he says, this is what God did for your grandfather. He elevated him to the highest place in terms of human authority. And instead of your grandfather becoming grateful, he just became more and more proud. 
God blessed your grandfather, and instead of him becoming more uh, worshipful of God, he became more worshipful of himself. Because that's what idolatry is. The, the worst form of idolatry is uh, not simply falling down in front of a, a stone um, form. It's the worship of ourselves, which is what the Bible calls pride. And so uh, that's why God uh, says he hates pride, because it's the worship of our own opinion, our own thoughts, our own selfish, selfish agenda, um, and that's what he's describing here is that for Nebuchadnezzar, his blessings did not lead him to the worship of God, but to the worship of himself. And as a result, God humbled him. And that's where we have the story of Nebuchadnezzar being given the mind of a beast. And he lives for seven years out in the wild, eating grass like an ox and acting like an animal. God's lesson was to Nebuchadnezzar, I want you to know that you're not really in charge. And secondly, that you wouldn't be in your position of power unless I put you there. Because what God does is he lets him act like an animal for seven years. And then people begin looking around saying, who do we really want to rule us? Hey, let's get that guy over there who's eating grass like an ox. Let's let him rule over us. What's the point of that? God says, I can take even the most crazy looking, sounding, acting person and make them your ruler if I want to. Because I'm in charge of who rules and who doesn't. And so it was a, a as some have said, Calvin and others, it was a, a terribly difficult punishment to go through but it was a very important lesson to learn that god is truly in charge and yet uh even though nebuchadnezzar learned that lesson for himself um daniel says that you he says in verse 22 yet you his son belshazzar have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this you have not humbled your heart even though you knew this and not only that you not only failed to learn from the past but you have actually defied god by drinking from the vessels of the temple Um, calvin calls this an insult and declaration of war on god Uh, matthew henry calls it defiance of god's deity it's kind of like um you know the french would have been known to take off their take off a glove and slap somebody in the face and see what they do that's exactly what belshazzar was doing to god it was a sense he was taking off his glove slapping god in the face and say so what are you going to do and god shows up he shows up and writes on the wall and says this is what i'm going to do And he tells him exactly what is going to happen. So in verses 24 through 28, uh, Daniel says, The hand was sent from God. Uh, Gives you the picture of God sending an angel to do this miracle and to write 
this message on the wall. Evidently, it was written in a language that no one could read. Uh, Daniel was given insight to understand what it said. And the first part of it said, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it, which means your life and the life of your kingdom is going to very quickly and suddenly come to an end. That's why it's mentioned twice, that it's going to happen, and it's going to happen quickly. And it did. It happened before the night was out. Secondly, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. I think Jan used this illustration in Sunday school. You can picture a scale uh, with a bar and and two uh, sides to it. You put something on one side and the scale goes up, or on the other side it goes down. And it's like God says, I put all that I require of you on this side, and there is absolutely nothing that can pull it back down on your side. Um, you have been weighed, and as Matthew Henry said, uh, you are weighed and you are too light. All that I require of you is on this side, and there is nothing on your side. There's no balancing of the scales. Then he says, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians, which means all the good that you have is my gift to you, and I'm taking it away because you have not humbled yourself. You have not acknowledged where the gifts come from. You haven't acknowledged where your authority comes from. And you've defied me. And you've said, I want a life without God. And he says, okay, I'll show you what a life without God looks like. And so that is what it was communicated on the wall to uh, Belshazzar. It says that in verse 29, Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. So what is the implication of that? Belshazzar didn't get it. Belshazzar didn't believe it. If he had believed that his kingdom was coming to an end, he would know that to give this honor to Daniel was pointless. If he had believed that his life was coming to his end, his kingdom was coming to an end, that he was deficient and was going to be judged for it, if he really believed that, he would have hit the ground and cried out for mercy. But he doesn't do that. He believes that, oh, you know, so far we've made it. I think we'll make it. After all, I think... He still had that false sense of security. And so he gives Daniel this award or reward. And it says in verse 30, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. And according to history, there were two generals, two of his generals who had been offended by him in different ways, who uh, conspired against him and murdered him that very night. And they helped King Cyrus, who found a way to divert the waters of the Euphrates and get his army across the Euphrates. And in collaboration with these traitors, they were able to overcome Belshazzar and bring down the Babylonian um, 
kingdom. And it says in verse 31, Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. And as I said before, that brought an end to the Babylonian kingdom. It also started uh, things in motion to deliver the children of Israel from captivity because King Cyrus is the one who's going to declare that they can go back to Israel. So God fulfills his word and his promises through all that took place. Let me just make a couple of applications for us. One of the first things I want to highlight is that as you think about what's going on with Belshazzar the king, there are uh, two issues for him that are highlighted in this chapter. One is the issue of idolatry because he defies God because of his trust in the gods of stone and wood and all those other things. His problem is idolatry. He doesn't worship the true God, but he worships other gods. But the even greater problem is his pride, because he doesn't simply worship all these other gods, but he worships himself. He worships his own thinking, his own beliefs, his own mind, his own achievements, and he thinks he's something great. He can't imagine not living forever. He can't imagine ever being held accountable. He can't imagine not somehow figuring out a way to overcome King Cyrus and can't imagine that the God of Israel would ever have any say in his life. And so the biggest problem that um, we have, and this is kind of a word for all of us who are believers, is we need to recognize that even as Christians, the greatest issue for us in our relationships is idolatry. Uh, David Pallison, who wrote the book that we're going to be going over in our small group, the book Good and Angry, uh, said if you look at all that the Bible says about sin, the number one reference to sin is in terms of idolatry. That most of the references to sin and how it manifests itself in the Bible is in uh, in terms of worshiping something that isn't God, which is a very interesting thing because the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments tell us that we're, we're not to have any other gods but God, and we're not to make any graven images. So the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments talk about idolatry, and actually the last commandment on coveting, Paul says coveting actually is idolatry. So really everything in the Ten Commandments and everything that flows out of the Ten Commandments, which are all the other commandments of God, are actually in one sense or another addressing the issue of worshiping someone or something other than God. And that's going to lead to me committing adultery or stealing or all the other things that the Ten Commandments talk about, that it's it's fundamentally an issue of whether or not I am worshiping the true God. And that's why you can see at the very end of the book of First John, which is a book about how you can have assurance of salvation, the very last verse says, uh, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Guard yourselves from worshiping anything other than God because God has called you to love him and love others and to be faithful to Christ. Realize that idolatry is always going to be something that's going to seek to undermine those relationships, your relationship with God and your relationship with others. 
So what is this story about? In a sense, obviously, on the surface, it's about Belshazzar's feast, but it's about the death of a king, and it's about the reason why he died. Why did he die? He died because of sin. Well, think about what sin is. Think about it in terms of, again, you know, at the very beginning, God puts a tree in the Garden of Eden, and it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's only one command where God says, don't do something. You can have all the trees in the garden to eat from, but don't eat from this one tree. But they eat from that tree, they disobey God, and the fall takes place, and now we're experiencing the fruit of that. Sin can be pictured in terms of all that it involves in terms of a tree. What was at the root of Adam and Eve's problems? They didn't believe God's word. God said, if you eat from this tree, you will die. Satan comes along and says, no, you won't die. So they believed Satan and they did not believe God. And then they began looking at the tree and they said, you know, that tree looks really good. Looks like it can make me wise. Looks like it'd be good for food. What is that? Instead of looking to God for all those things, they began looking to the tree for all those things. And so it's kind of like the 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 root of sin is our we just don't believe what god says and then the trunk of the tree is the fact that we begin looking to other things and people to do for us that only god is supposed to do and then finally what is the fruit of that they take from the tree and they eat they actually do something in disobedience to god so the branches and the fruit of the unbelief and the idolatry of sin is that we actually disobey God. And so what we why it's so important for us to recognize the issue of idolatry is that it's rooted in our failure to believe what God says is true and it's ultimately going to bear the fruit of disobedience and not loving people and not loving God as we should. And so we always have to ask ourselves uh, what is going on. So let me just highlight a few things as we wrap up here in this story about idolatry. Idolatry is basically just God uh, having a God substitute. It's where it says in Romans 1 that, that we exchange the creator for the creation. And so whatever we would look to God for, we look to our spouse for that, or we look to our children for that, or we look to our parents to that, or we look to our church or our, our co-worker, whatever help we think we need, We look to somebody else but God for it. Whatever happiness we long for, we look to somebody else for it instead of God. Or we look for it uh, in a bottle or, you know, in a drug or whatever it might be. We look for it apart from God. Anything that we look to for the help we need and the happiness our hearts long for that we put in place of God is an idol. And the idolatry that manifests itself causes us to, for one thing, take what was made for worship and turn it into something that's just for pleasure. They took the uh, the items, the, the cups of the temple, and they used them for pleasure. There are plenty of people who simply live for the weekend. They've been created to glorify and enjoy God, but they just live using the members of their body just to pursue pleasure on the weekend. That's taking what was actually meant for the worship of God and turning it into just 
looking for pleasure. That's what Belshazzar, in a sense, was doing. Idolatry gives credit to things that are made rather than the maker of those things. So if I credit myself with all my achievements and I don't give glory to God, then I am acting as an idolater. If I think that um, other people are the key to my help and my happiness and not God, then I'm giving credit to them that is not due them. God may use them, but God gets the credit. Uh, so we don't want to praise uh, idols. We don't praise the gods like Belshazzar did. Idolatry brings confusion and fear and perplexity. It's hard to make sense of what's going on in our lives uh, when we don't recognize the truth of the situation, that, that, that there is one God that he's been revealed to us in Jesus and that he's in charge. And there's a, there's a way that he calls us to trust him and a way that he calls us to live. And apart from that, we can't make sense of what's going on. Idolatry blurs our vision. It doesn't help us. And, you know, if you're in a, a relationship with someone and you worship the, the ground they walk on, you're going to find it hard to make really good decisions about that relationship. If you want to make a good decision about a relationship you're in, you need to make sure that you're worshiping God and not that person. Because idolatry confuses us and blinds us and leads us to do uh, unwise things at best. Idolatry as I said, is fundamentally a worshiper, a worship of the idolater. Now, even if I fell down in front of a stone image, ultimately I would be worshiping myself. Why? Because I think that stone, stone image is going to be my help and my happiness. I've, I've, I've created my own God. I've, I've turned that God into uh, the one I'm looking to. So I'm really worshiping myself because I've created the God that I'm worshiping rather than looking to the God who truly exists. And that's what Belshazzar was doing as well. Uh, idolatry ignores the lessons of the past and assumes it will be different for us. That's what it is with socialism. We ignore what happened in the past. We think socialism is going to be great in our country. Um, we see what happens to people that win the lottery and how it doesn't always play out good, but everybody still wants to win the lottery and think that's, thinks that's the answer to their happiness. We don't learn from the past. And why is that? Because we refuse to worship God and look to him for what we need, and we still look to money, and we still look to failed attempts to gain help and happiness apart from God. And so there's all kinds of things that if we think about, we can learn about the danger of even as Christians, our temptation to look away from God and look to the people in our lives or, or look to the things that we have for our security, for our help, and for our happiness. But ultimately, um, there's, a, there's a message here to all of us as sinners as well. Um, because the writing on the wall is what? For all of us. Um, the writing on the wall, you could argue, in light of all that the Bible says, that has been declared to the world full of sinners is Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Which means we are all sinners. We all deserve death. We all deserve God's judgment. That's what was um, communicated to Belshazzar is you have been found deficient. You have not measured up 
to what God requires. You are a sinner who deserves death. And yet, I do believe that God was showing mercy to Belshazzar because he didn't have to give him a heads up. Even if it was only a few hours heads up, he still warned him. He still said, you've been found deficient. What are you going to do about that? God says the same thing to everybody in our world. You've been found deficient. What are you going to do about that? And then he says, let me tell you what I've done about that. I've sent my son to take the punishment you deserve so that you don't have to die eternally, so that you can enjoy living in my presence forever. That's why the rest of the verse says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me just close right here. Um, Calvin said in light of this passage, talking about the handwriting on the wall and how we need to give attention to what God communicates. And he, he, he basically lifts up the Bible and says, don't miss uh, this tremendous, precious thing that you've been given. It's like Belshazzar had Daniel. Belshazzar had writing on the wall from God. Uh, that's kind of like what we need to see the Bible as. It's our writing on the wall, so to speak. And he says about that, let us feel our need of Scripture as a guide and instructor which shines on our path, urging us to think of God as inviting us to himself and willingly revealing himself to us. He says, listen to the Bible as the guide for your life and hear God as inviting you to himself and revealing himself to you, just like he did to Belshazzar. But don't be hard-hearted like Belshazzar. Don't reject God's invitation. Don't reject the truth that God proclaims. Don't reject his offer of mercy in Jesus. And as Christians, we seek to communicate that to the people around us. And we seek to rejoice in that every day as his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that you just help us to See how it applies to us. Help us to to understand what your word says, to see what it means, and and to see what it means for us and how it calls us to trust you and how it calls us to live our lives um, resisting idolatry, resisting looking to other people and things for what we need and desire, and to look to you that we might love you and love others. And I pray, Father, that we would know that your word tells us very clearly that the writings on the wall, that sin brings death, and yet you've granted us an answer, a a help, a, a deliverer in Jesus. And I pray that all of us here would rest in that hope and that help that we have in Jesus. Please grant us grace to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.